And but when you go to the operating room in the virtual environment, you're actually you feel like you're fully immersed in an operating room. You're in an OR. You have a virtual patient in front of you. You can move and position the patient how you like. You know, there's imaging available if you need it, like an X-ray machine,、mm-hmm. and then there's instruments because we use a lot of instruments in orthopedics. You know, you're replacing a knee or a shoulder, or doing something soft tissue. So, what we wanted to do is、uh, really immerse somebody in that environment to make them feel like they're actually in the OR, but then in this digital space where they can actually make mistakes, behave like they would do, or do things that they may not do to test out. Different opportunities and pathways, and go through the entire experience, and then at the end of it, get a score, which we validated、uh, to be actually quite effective to determine if you're actually safe or not to go to the operating room. What is happening, everyone? Today's guest of honor is Danny Gol, a doctor turned founder at the intersection of surgery, education, and virtual reality. In today's discussion, we zoom in on the importance of time to market. Danny's bootstrap mentality and the adoption of software and hardware in the healthcare industry. This is the Dirt Podcast, and I am your host, Jim Barnish. To support us, please check out our sponsor, Orchid Black, at orchid.black. And if you are enjoying the content, let us know by sharing it with someone on social media. And now, my friends, here's Danny Gold. All right, Danny, say hello to everyone. Hi, everybody. Danny Gold. Nice to meet everyone. Yeah, awesome. So let's start with something,、uh, something simple. What inspired you to found Precision OS? It's a really good question, and it's a question I get commonly, as you can imagine. But I think a lot of it came from my desire to improve my own skill as a surgeon, and what that required me to do. You go through residency, you do extra training, and then you do additional training, and you still don't feel fully ready. To be the sole and responsible person in the operating room, and it's、uh, it's a long road. And to think that、uh, you commit that amount of time and energy of your life, and then still not feel like you can be at the top of your game when you're done, is the biggest motivation behind why we're doing what we're doing at Precision. So, what is it that you guys are doing at Precision that that makes you guys so special? the The basic finding of our product, which makes us unique, is we align how we develop with how we learn normally. And as you know, many of us, all of us, learn any sport instrument, and in this case, surgery, by making mistakes and error. And right now, that idea and concept doesn't exist very well in healthcare, unless it's at the expense of a patient.、Mm. And so, our simulation that we've built allows one to make error. And behave in a very authentic way, allowing them to practice their skill, deepen their understanding before they go to the operating room. What challenges are your clients facing the most that you guys are helping most that, that you guys are helping with? The biggest challenge with simulation, and particularly with our scenario, is virtual reality. Is that VR hasn't received broad adoption yet, so there is a hardware adoption curve that we're. Subjective to or subject to, you know, if it was、uh, this, if you could do this on an iPhone or an iPad or a computer, it'd be a different story. One of the biggest challenges we have is that people still don't understand what VR is,、mm-hmm. and they confuse it with AR or mixed reality. And we can certainly get into those definitions at some point, but the the lack of access to the world of having a VR headset takes away from 
seeing the impact that it actually has when you put on a headset and go through a VR experience? So I put on my headset. Um, I'm I'm basically there in training, right? In in the orthopedic room, let's just say, right? And is it uh, just orthopedics? Is it uh, emergency rooms? Like what what kind of environment are you guys typically in as as you're doing these trainings? We started in orthopedic surgery, given that I'm an orthopedic surgeon, right? And which makes the most sense. Makes sense, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of innovation happening in orthopedics. You know, there's a lot of new implants that are being created. There's a lot of new procedures. There's a lot to learn. And so we started there. And but when you go to the operating room in the virtual environment, you're actually you feel like you're fully immersed in an operating room. You're in an OR. You have a virtual patient in front of you. You can move and position the patient how you like. You know, there's imaging available if you need it, like an x-ray machine. Mm -hmm. And then there's instruments because we use a lot of instruments in orthopedics. You know, you're replacing a knee or a shoulder or doing something soft tissue. So what we wanted to do is uh, really immerse somebody in that environment to make them feel like they're actually in the OR, but then in this digital space where they can actually make mistakes, behave like they would do or do things that they may not do to test out different opportunities and pathways and go through the entire experience. And then at the end of it, get a score, which we validated uh, to be actually quite effective to determine if you're actually safe or not to go to the operating room. Hmm. How, what percentage of people are safe to go to the operating room? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, question because when you do anything in healthcare, uh, unlike in, in say, some consumer-focused uh, products, you have to show that the product actually works with really good and well-done research, which means you have to compare a group A to a group B, and the group B is perhaps your product, and show that it actually has a, a beneficial outcome to the learner, mostly because the consequences are so high. And, yeah. well, in fact, in any high-risk training, I think it, it, uh, it sort of... Uh, it it really empowers us to have to do that research because we're putting people's lives at risk. And so you have to show that your product actually works and show it that it works with some really well done research. So I've got a, I've got a guy on my team. He just probably had his fourth or fifth knee surgery. Yeah. Right? He's in that knee surgery. Is, is that yeah. patient realizing what's going on, that there's an in-flight training scenario? They're like, is, what's the effect on the patient? I guess is probably the question. So just to be clear, when you're in the virtual environment, there is no actual patient involved with the training. It is all digital. So you're moving a digital limb. There's no patient involved because it's, it's actually just education and training. In the operating room, we don't do anything related to the in the operative or intraoperative yeah. training. It's actually before you get to the operating room. Got it. Got it. And when, when you, uh, as you guys have, have been building for a while, I think you started in 2018 or so? Uh, 2017. 2017. Yeah, even more yeah. so. What was the market like then versus the market today for what you guys are doing? Back when we started, we had a really big setup for VR. And you probably remember the big headsets. They're much smaller now, as you know, but they were always connected to a really expensive computer. And you had to set up these... Uh, these external cameras to determine your position in space. <clears throat> it was really early in 2017. I can say early, and that was only, you know, five yeah, years ago. Five years ago. But yeah, you remember, right? But the setup was very elaborate. 
And even back then, when we showcased several prototypes to the different stakeholders in the medical industry, uh, different healthcare providers, trainees, and medical device company executives, I mean, they saw the future of this. They saw that this was a powerful technology that they could leverage for multiple use cases, both within the organization as well as externally uh, for healthcare providers and learners. So would you say that you were maybe a little bit early from early to market um, for your solution or were you perfect timing? Like what, what was that like? I guess perfect timing is always <laughs> something you comment on in retrospect, but you know, we needed the time to do several things you know, because we're so focused on the problem. You know, it takes some time to understand the problem and I live in the problem and that's why I stay in practice so as a, as, a, as a physician surgeon, I'm the customer of the product. And that's one of the reasons I've stayed in practice is I always want to be close to where would this play a role and how would I use it or how would someone else use it with me? Mm-hmm. And so I think from a, if I look back, there was a lot of things that we had to do to get to where we are today, which took time. You know, you have to develop prototypes. You have to have a lot of customer uh, or user contact to refine the solution that we've developed. And importantly, it took us the time to do the research. And when you publish your studies in really well-respected peer-reviewed journals, that takes time. So, and I think in the absence of evidence, uh, because the risks are so high and the stakes are significant, we needed that time to actually prove where we are today. So I don't know if I could have started today, but I'm certainly happy we started when we did. Right, to get to the point where you are now. Yeah. Which, Which involves both software and hardware, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the hardware had to mature and the software is also matured. And certainly if you were to ask, if you were to ask me five years ago, Danny, could you do this in VR? I would have said, I have no idea if I can. (laughs) And even, (laughs) even six months ago, uh, it's surprising to me. And this speaks to the talent of our team as to what we're doing today. I would not have imagined we could do six months ago. So what is it that you're doing today that you couldn't have imagined six months ago? Well, just the level of simulation that we've been able to achieve. You know, we've created this really authentic environment that uh, when we first started was certainly less authentic. And But there's several things that happen, obviously, when you start a company is not only is your product refined, you grow as an individual. And so I have learned a lot in the last five years. And it's really stretched my brain to think in different ways. You know, physicians, we don't generally get business training when we're going through medical school and training because we're so hyper-focused on the problem that we're trying to see in front of us, which is the patient, and address their problem. So that business training and, you know, market dynamics, everything has changed. So I think that time uh, allows us to mature as a company, mature as a product, and mature as individuals. And has that maturity and an adoption um, been sort of the same on the hardware and software side as, you know, are you seeing kind of great timing on both? Um, what does that look like for, uh, for precision? The hardware has definitely matured a lot. And I'm, I'm actually quite impressed and very inspired by some of the hardware we're seeing right now. You know, putting something on your face is actually quite unique if you think about it, because when you think of a sensor, it can be a ring or a watch, you know, or even a belt of some mm-hmm. type that you wear around your chest. But it's actually quite, uh, it's somewhat novel to have to put something on your face to have an experience, right? Because we're so used to iPads or phones, something that's very external. Right. But when it's 
when it's this invasive, which is on your face, to have such an immersive experience, that's the novelty of where VR is uh, is having some challenges, but then gaining traction as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, what happens when you can smell the operating room? Does that does that change the experience? Uh, it's a great point, and there's actually a company that's doing that right now, which I haven't tried personally, but you know, adding that sense of smell to the already immersive experience, I think is is going to be another powerful piece. Is so who's who's doing that right now? You know, I can't recall the name of the company, but there is perhaps one or two companies where you actually have an attachment on your headset and you actually get the sense of smell of the environment that you're actually seeing. And it's live or it's, it's in beta? Or? Uh, I think it's commercially available right now. Wow. Actually. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. I yeah but don't quote me on that. If it's no, but it available. sounds like, I mean, these things are, these these innovations are happening by the day, right? I mean, it's it's amazing some of the things and some of the, the way that that's impacting yeah. Um, healthcare too. Correct. Like I, I read something, um, I don't know if it might've been today actually that Apple launched, um, some, something that was connected to, um, solving, it wasn't for cystic fibrosis, but it was, I think it was diabetes. I think it was something connected right. to diabetes. Yeah. Right? It was, uh, it was measuring level. glucose without having to poke a needle in your skin. It's on, that's unreal. This innovation that yeah. like, so really where do you impressive. see things being in, in, in a few years? You know, I think sensors, it's a huge, um, so there's, there's technology and then there's healthcare. Mm -hmm. And uh, one usually advances faster than the other, which is pretty classic. And healthcare is a very conservative industry. We're baked in tradition and we have to be. And we're very critical of new technologies, which is actually healthy for us as physicians. And it's actually really good for patients. And I've talked about this before where you need to have the ability to think abstractly and out of the box. So not every lump is a cancer and not every cancer is a lump. Uh, when you see a patient, you create what's called a differential diagnosis. So we're very critical of things we see. And that's to allow us to give the best care possible for patients. So this critical mindset is baked in healthcare and will continue. But technology continues to evolve significantly faster. So the innovations happening on the technology side are quite rapid. Merging the two requires some very careful consideration. And so that's that's kind of what we're seeing is there there's some good overlap, but it's not a full overlap. It's more of a Venn diagram mm -hmm. where you can see part of the circle within the other circle. I mean, digital transformation in, in the healthcare industry is... Um is is kind of amazing to have watched the last few years in in general is there is there anything that um specifically impacts precision or the way that you guys are viewing long term focus any anything around digital transformation that you're really paying special attention to well there's a lot of stuff in that area i would say in general i would say that the pandemic really allowed people to think a little bit differently about how we need to deliver care and how we could deliver care. So the opportunity to deliver virtual care with patients via telephone are some really wonderful programs that have been developed where you can be on a Zoom call with a patient, for example. Those all came to light and really helped us, I think, overall to deliver care for patients. So the pandemic helped. Where I see things going is just more adoption of sorry, I should rephrase, careful adoption of technologies that we know are going to provide better patient care. So the patient in the center, 
And then technology should always be thinking, how do I make sure that the end benefactor, their situation or what the outcome for them is always improving and the innovation that I'm introducing helps to support that. What, what, uh, what motivates you to keep pushing the boundaries at Precision? I'm super motivated by this. Uh, and the reason is, is because when I go and see a patient, I'm one person and I can, yeah. I have a finite number of things I can do during a day for those patients. And, you know, I receive some, some really good training, but imagine delivering that training around the world, that quality of training that's accessible to every healthcare provider anywhere on the planet. And the impact that that could have on patients the patients' lives, their families' lives are so significant. I'll give you an example of this. So we partnered with a, a nonprofit that's based out of Richland, Washington. Uh, this organization is called Sign Fracture Care. They teach surgeons in low and middle income countries how to fix broken bones with nails, like long nails that go in the bone. Okay. But in those areas, they don't have x-ray. Some of them don't have x-ray. So this nail requires you to teach these surgeons how to do this nail without x-ray. So you're wow. sort of blinded by, because you can't see normally when you're teaching, teaching fractures, pardon me, treating fractures, you use x-ray. So they would fly there to train these surgeons or to train the surgeons to train, to actually help treat their patients. But now they can do it virtually. So they can do it from Richland and train surgeons in these low middle income countries using VR so they can teach more people and they can subsequently teach more people. And why this is important is because in these areas, the number of pedestrians that get hit by motor vehicles is profound. And it's usually the working class, you know, between 18 and 38, 40. Now, when you're making $2 a day and you go into poverty, you're not working because your fracture hasn't healed or it's it hasn't been treated well, which means you go into poverty, your family's in poverty, subsequently their your children's children are in poverty. And so it's an, there's a massive economic impact that it has and a mental impact it has to generations when something like a fracture is not treated well. And so that for me is extremely motivating from areas like that to even areas around where I live, North America, Europe, if we can give everybody access to the best education without having to, you know, live with up beyond their means or travel beyond their means, that for me is, I mean, the motivation I need. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's incredible motivation. That's, yeah. that's, uh, that's awesome to hear. Any, any other stories like that, that, that come to mind? You know, we had, um, we had another case where a, uh, a trainee who had never done a case before uh, was able to actually practice in our system and then do that exact case on a patient the next day. And this was with a 12 year old boy. And this is where the power of making mistakes in a safe environment like VR actually has direct translation. So it's not like he had done 50, hundred cases before he actually saw this particular case. He had never done this particular type of surgery before. So he was able to practice in our system only for four times, watched his score, what we call a precision score, go up. And the next day was able to do it with confidence and proficiency that he would never have had otherwise. I mean, how do you accelerate or bend somebody's learning curve? It's just not possible in healthcare unless you're treating patient after patient after patient. So right. that uh, that's our agenda is to bend that learning curve so people can actually provide safer and better care. 
And it's always all about the reps, right? You're allowing for more repetition, more reps. Yeah, we, uh, I have some comments on that, you know, repetition. So one of the things I've learned a lot about is learning in the last uh, five years, how we learn as humans. And, and I've applied that to what I do in the operating room. So when people say you need to learn steps to surgery day, that can actually be a very dangerous thing. So because it doesn't give you the feedback when you're making an untoward action, meaning that if I, you know, let's say, and I'll use golf as a simple analogy. If I'm always told that you should use a nine iron for 130 degrees or if, pardon me, 130 yards and it's raining, the grass is wet, my ball is not sitting well, I probably shouldn't use a nine iron, right? right. And that's where that decision-making comes in the judgment. And so you, we want to embrace that concept to make sure people are not just mindlessly doing steps of a surgery without paying attention to the things that actually could impact the outcome for the patient. So your solution is not just giving more reps, it's providing context exactly. uh, for the situation that, that yeah. the individual is in. Yeah. Hence the precision score, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. No, it's okay. Got it. Got it. I think I'm catching on now. So yeah. um, let's take a quick, quick sidebar here for a little bit about how you got here the last five years, right? Because I think your stories, I think your story is fascinating. You guys have had a really high growth trajectory the last few years. You're making a major difference in healthcare, but it wasn't always this easy, right? Not that it's easy now, but it wasn't always like a yellow brick road, so to speak. Talk to me about some of the some of the trials, the tribulations, the things that you've had to overcome as you've grown the business the last, I guess, almost five, six years now. Yeah. So certainly we don't think there's a yellow brick road at all. Yeah. <laughs> and uh you know, because we there's trials and tribulations on a on an ongoing basis. So, you know, how do you grow? So your question is, you know, what are the trials and tribulations we've had from the beginning is we wanted to take a very careful approach to this technology to say we know it's powerful. There's been a lot of technologies that have been shown to be very powerful, but to get into healthcare is a little bit of a different animal. So our challenge was to really understand the problem in a lot of detail, to really get, dig into where the challenges, where the limitations, and really focus our solution based on that finding. And, you know, you always want to then, you never want to be the person that thinks he or she knows everything. So you want to surround yourself with the smartest people you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, you know, that we, myself and my founders did early on, is we always had our ego checked at the door to say, guys, look, what is our gaps? Guys and girls, what are our gaps? And let's fill those gaps with the right people who share our vision, share our passion. And I think that's how you can effectively grow a company and not overgrow and not do things sort of that would potentially have a negative impact to you as, a, as an organization. So what are your self-admitted gaps? Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't have a lot of, um, experience in the business domain. I mean, I, I did my MBA actually early on, but prior to that, you know, business is a really interesting concept to think about on a regular basis, you know, from finance to strategy to marketing, uh, to leadership. And I think that those are things that I continue to improve on. And especially I think one of my biggest gaps was, I mean, I don't think a lot of people have, uh, done or had to empower a group of people to think and feel the same way 
as passionate as you are. At least I didn't have to do that, right? I have to usually convince myself that I'm empowered enough to do what I want to do on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And so to, to be able to express yourself in a way to share your passion with people and bring people along who share that passion with you and that, that fire in their belly to say, look, everything you do, every line of code you develop is actually going to impact somebody that you'll never know about, right? And it'll, it'll transcend your life probably for the rest of your career because what you develop today will have an impact for tomorrow and generations to come. And so that's the part that I continue to build on is, you know, how to be the most effective leader within the organization. And as, as the team continues to grow, have, have you had, you know, any, um, any barriers on team growth that have, have been really hard to push past, right? Like, you know, for instance, you know, your first executive hire, right? Or, you know, the first time you needed to get somebody that, um, I'll let you, I'll let you answer this however you see fit. Yeah, I guess it depends on how far you reach for people and where you're considering to go. And one of the things that the pandemic was really valuable for me is, is I never thought we'd hire anybody outside of Vancouver. Right. That's kind of how we all thought, you know, you have a business, you hire people in Vancouver, but the pandemic opened us up to this talent pool that we just never know existed. I mean, we knew it was there, but we never knew we could actually hire somebody remotely. So, you know, the gaps that we're filling are also led by the product we're creating and, and we'll always wait for the right person. Always. And I, you know, the feedback we get from our team when we interview people is this is a democratic decision. If somebody says, look, I didn't get the right or wrong, or I got a wrong feel for this person, or this was said to me, I think that that hiring process is really significant for us. And so it hasn't been, and this is a challenge that I've read about constantly in the past, which is hiring is, there's no science behind hiring. It's an art and we get it wrong a lot. And, um, but that's, that's the big thing for me is we haven't had challenges filling gaps. We've always had uh, challenges waiting for the right person. And that's, I guess that's an ongoing challenge that we're happy to have on a regular basis. Well, yeah, the chance, I mean, the faster you grow, right, the, the more you need to hire talent fast. And it encourages you to almost make the wrong decision by filling a space with the body, right? Yeah, and, and I, I, worry, I worry about that. You know, yeah. I worry about the concept of growing too fast because we all share a common a common bond within our organization right now. And I think if I had to go from going from 50 to, say, 200 people, I'd have a hard time because I'm a high-touch uh, individual, meaning I want to have people be able to reach out to me and I want to be able to touch base with them or connect with them at a deeper level. So we all share the same vision as what we want to create moving forward. But if I had to go from 50 to say 200 people, it'd be very hard for me to do that, I think, and focus on the culture. And, you know, this is, people have said this and much smarter than me have said this in the past that culture is strategy all the time, which I think that's a really important piece for us is that we continue to build on that culture that we have and not get it it diluted too fast in a rapidly growing situation. Well, yeah, I mean, you touch on something really important around growth because you guys have not been venture backed, right? You're not a that's right. you know a venture type growth environment like some of your competitors might be. Right. Um, you've been in very intentional of bootstrapping, being profitable, things like that from the beginning. How has that journey uh, 
How's that journey been? Because not everyone goes through that, right? But like, how has that journey been in, in times you might have wished that you had gotten more money, um, you know, things along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for what other companies have done, but I know this is the right journey for us. And uh, for all the things that I mentioned before, which is maintain that culture, maintaining that idea that we're very problem focused mm-hmm. and um, that we want to ensure that this powerful technology gets utilized for good. And so that for me has been the core focus. And regardless of being venture backed or not, I think this has been our journey and we're going to continue on that journey and base our decisions for additional funding uh, based on how we see progress, not based on what other people are doing. Have, I mean, great, great answer. Have, have, uh, have you raised any money to date or has it all been self-funded? I uh, no, we have raised some money. It's been friends, family primarily. Okay. And, um, when you think about raising money versus, versus not, um, what, what are some of the things that you think through as it relates to, is it time to seek external funding? So, you know, I've had really interesting conversations with VCs over the years, and I think they're, it's all about aligning agendas, right? Where you see the company going and where they, they see the company going. When you align agendas that way, then you have a really strong relationship with a, with a venture capitalist group. And there's some, there's some fabulous ones out there. I've had some excellent conversations with them. I think funding should be really geared towards when you truly see a path to acceleration, meaning you're at a point where you're going to take money and rapidly grow um, your sales team, for example, or external distributors to sell your product because you can't get it out the door fast enough. And so I think to me, that makes the most sense when you're raising that kind of money. The other aspect of it is when you have to do a lot of R&D, I think you can actually start off pretty small because R&D is something that, and I use this term with our team a lot, is we should always fire bullets before we fire cannons. Meaning if you can prototype something for me in a half day and then let's test it to see how it resonates, that for Mm -hmm. me is a much more powerful R&D sort of cycle than spending, say, four months building something in a silo and then expecting it to, you know, fly when you bring it onto the uh, customer environment. Well, and it leads to a lot less technical debt, too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So would you say that's kind of a mantra that you guys have, have lived by pretty consistently, whether it's product or sales or anything, is is test, iterate, validate, you know, things like that before you scale too big? Yeah, and that's something that I've learned just in my readings over the years, which is that is the sort of the recommended way to go is to iterate and iterate fast and test your products. And because, you know, people will tell you what they like and don't like. And I always like the question of when you put somebody in VR, and I'll go back to VR as an example, everybody says, wow, this is amazing. But what I want to know is what do you not like about it? What's annoying you about this experience? Because that's important to me and it's important to our product. But if you focus on the, wow, this is a really great experience, what happens when people get past that wow factor? Then what? Right? And that's that's a concern for me because I see this as such a powerful product in general. If used and developed the right way and executed in the environment the right way, it can actually make our vision as a company come true. 
Well, that's the difference between a, a feature and a value, right? I mean, it's, exactly. it, if people yep. are seeing it as something cool, uh, yep. eventually it'll lose its lose lose its innovation and interest. Um, right. What are the key mantras do you guys live by as you're building and growing and uh, you know scaling the business? You know the um, when I when I met Rob and Colin, one of the things that we talked a lot about which is this idea of trust, respect, and accountability. And so you can hold somebody accountable in a very respected way, and but the accountability builds trust. So I think as an organization, <clears throat> I trust the team that I have with me. And um, so when something is requested of somebody to say, hey, will you do, you know, object, will you complete objective A, B, or C by this date? We know that it's going to be done. And if it's not going to be done, people will talk about why it wasn't done. And then we'll dissect down what do we learn from it not being executed. So I think those are really big things that you have in an organization that you just can't replace. So that trust, the respect, and then driving accountability for each person. What else um, What else drives the precision future? Like what 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 are some other things that you're constantly thinking about as you guys continue to build and grow? You know, the market dynamics are really interesting right now, obviously, with um, the financial situation. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I think, upcoming challenges in healthcare. You know, we're short physicians, we're short nurses. Mm. What are we going to do for, you know, a population that is growing to train or to treat them with a population of healthcare providers that isn't growing as rapidly? That's what I think about, you know, as a, as a big problem moving forward. The volume of surgeries that's going to be required goes up. And uh, access to training is actually harder today and getting more expensive than it was before. So there's costs going up with training people to do the job that they're going to need to do moving forward, where these there were the demands going to be higher and the supply is going to be less. We have some big challenges ahead of us in general in healthcare. Mm-hmm. We're not certainly the solution for all of them, but I think that education plays a big role. Yeah. Any any other um, business partners? Any anyone else that's solving problems similar in your space that um, or or connected to your space that um, that you've been re- really just wowed by? So one of the innovations that I've seen, which is actually it's a personal uh, a personal assessment, which I think has helped me, and I talk to people about this on a constant basis, is this idea of sleep and data behind sleep. Hmm. You know, when I started uh, this journey, actually, we all did as residents and as junior surgeons, you don't sleep as much. And if I went to bed at midnight and woke up at 8 a.m., I thought that I got eight hours of sleep. I just thought that constantly. But when you're feeling sluggish during the day and you're sort of tired, you just think, well, I'm getting enough sleep. There must be something else going on. I got introduced to this ring it's called Aura, O-U-R-A. And I bought one just because I thought it'd be interesting to just test this out. And it was, I think I had a 30-day trial or something. Mm-hmm. And this is where data starts to empower you. So this was important to me because I said, I'm probably not getting enough sleep. Let's look into this deeper. When I started looking into this deeper, I could actually see how much REM sleep I was getting, non-REM sleep, deep sleep, how many hours I was truly sleeping, what my resting heart rate was. It actually had a it had a behavioral change on me. 
to say, I should not go to bed at midnight because that's not a good time to go to sleep. 9.30 to 10 is probably a better time. And if I'm waking up at five, the first thing I do every morning is I check my sleep data to see mm-hmm. how I did. And I build off that. So I've adjusted my behavior uh, against the data that I've seen from this ring. And I think that that's an example of, as healthcare providers, we have to empower patients to find something that's important to them that they're trying to solve, or we can help them solve through a technology like this, which actually can then change their behavior intrinsically, meaning that I'm not telling you to do something. You actually physically, internally want to change your behavior to improve your health. And so for me, that's been the biggest, one of the biggest insights is this whole data. It's effectively a sensor. It's sensing how much I sleep and giving me really good feedback on what I should do differently or what I could Mm -hmm. do differently. Mm Mm-hmm. One, one, well, a couple of questions, but one that's uh, one that's a fun one that I uh, think people probably resonate with. Do you sleep more as an entrepreneur or as a doctor? Or oh, less? That's a great. That's a great question. question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think as a as a, as a surgeon, when you when you have a big case, and yep. uh, you know, I'm sure my colleagues would agree that uh, you don't really have the best sleep. And when you're a, when you're a physician and surgeon, there's this baseline level of stress that you live with that just stays there. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's just always there. It's not, it, it, sometimes it actually, you know, gets extreme, but it just, it's, there's always this baseline level of, cause you're always a doctor 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. When you're on a plane flying back from Mexico, you're still a doctor if somebody has an issue and that's happened to me. And I'm sure many of my colleagues in the past. And so the sleep, I think, I don't know, it's a, it's a hard comparison because I haven't done, I haven't done both at the same time. Well, actually, I guess I am doing both at the same time right now, <laughs> but uh, I'm trying to be mindful of how much I sleep right now because I think it's such an important piece of how we function on a day-to-day basis. Have you ever used uh, Whoop or any of the other, you know, data, data-driven wearables? You know, I haven't uh, tried that one, and I certainly don't have any conflict of interest with Aura. It just happens to be the one that I tried, yeah, and uh, the one that I have. Yeah, no, yeah. great. Well, yeah. they're, I think they're different too, right? Like one is about recovery and in, in, in general, you know, um, uh, well-being, and the other one's really. I mean, Aura is really heavy on on sleep, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's 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 interesting. By the way, this message is not sponsored by Aura or Whoop. Uh, <laughs> so, so when you, um, when you think about the future of wearables, this is a fun one, VR, you know, data, whatever, what, where do you think things end up in 10 years? I think it goes back to my own personal experience with Aura. And again, I'm an N of one, but my feeling is that's the way it should go is that we have to give people or patients the intrinsic motivation to change behavior. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to wear a sensor. It's not that someone told me to wear a sensor. Right. And because I wear it, now I'll always wear it and I'll rely on that data. Data is a very powerful tool if you can use it and empower somebody to do something differently. But I think that's going to be our big our big task moving forward is how do we empower people to use all these amazing products that are out there that are giving us different information about our blood sugar, our sleep, you know, whether or not we snore at night, at sleep apnea, et cetera, to change how they uh, become or change their behavior towards health. Because if we think about the problems that we talked about earlier, where 
the population is getting older, healthcare is getting more expensive. Yep. Prevention is the most economical way to change things. It's not treatment, it's actually prevention. And so if we can prevent things early on, that'll actually help alleviate some of those problems I identified earlier. Which is going to require individuals to desire taking proactive exactly. responsibility, right? Right, yeah. I I like to end every show the same way. Not that, you know, and we're going to have to do a part two sometime, by the way, because I got a million <laughs> more questions. But um, But I like to end every show the same way with what we call the Founder Five, which is really five things five questions all about your growth and, and both as an individual and as a company. Um, and my, my first one is what is the top KPI, top metric, top measure that you are relentlessly focused on? So there's two, uh, there's an internal external. Uh, so the internal one is the satisfaction of our team uh, with what they're doing on a daily basis. And uh, the external one is the impact our product is having in the field. And uh, that can be measured in many different ways, but I'll just say that as a high level is the impact our product is having uh, in the field or externally. Those are the two KPIs that I think about on a regular basis. And in, internally, are you doing ENPS or some other, some other measure? Yeah, we have different metrics uh, yeah. that we use internally. But I think, you know, the the satisfaction and the health and the well-being of our team is a top priority for me. Yeah, especially being in the world of healthcare. Yeah. 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 And even even if not in healthcare, I think that, you know, your the people that work for an organization are their most valuable asset cuz uh we're nothing without our team. And you know, I'm I'm the spokesperson for our team, but the talent that's building and testing and formulating our product is why I'm here with you sitting and telling you about what we do at Precision OS. Yeah, absolutely. They're taking yeah. care of your customers. Your customers are taking care of you, right? So yeah. that's uh, uh, well well said. So, uh, all right. Second one is what's a top tip for other growth stage founders like yourself? So I think I would, I would go back and assess where are you truly in the stage of a company? Are you truly at growth stage and can you prove it? Can you actually verbalize it to an investor? Because if you are, I would seek the appropriate funding that's going to take you to the next step if you truly are at that stage. If you're not, just go back and reevaluate where you truly are as a company and check your ego at the door and say, okay, this is where we truly are as a company and get external input on if you truly think you are where you are as an organization. What about a top tip that might go against some conventional wisdom? A top tip that goes against conventional wisdom is, you know, I think that, you know, don't raise too much money too fast. Yeah. People talk about that a lot. And being in Vancouver, we're a little bit buffered from that. But I think in certain parts of the world, it's always let's continue to raise as much money as we possibly can. And that's a metric of success. And I think, you know, that shouldn't be considered a metric of success. And I think that that's perhaps, yeah. maybe it's it's probably my thinking. Uh, I think that way. But I think that's something that I would say goes against maybe what convention is in certain circles. And I know a lot of the VCs and different investors are thinking differently about how they invest too now. 
Yeah, it started, it's starting to shift, but you wouldn't believe the number of calls. Maybe you would believe it. The number of calls I get, guess how much money I just raised. More importantly, guess what the valuation was, right? Like, oh, yeah. Well, the higher the valuation doesn't always mean that that's a really positive metric. <laughs> Yeah, and to be and to be fair, you know, I I do congratulate and commend the people that have done that. I think sure. that raising money is a very hard thing to do, and yeah, it's a it should be. Job. It, yeah, it's a full time job. It should be commended. Uh, just make sure it's right for you at the right time. Yep, well said. Yeah. All right. What's a uh, what's a favorite book or podcast or some medium that's helped you to grow as a founder? Uh, so the one of the one of the books that really I think impacted me is this book by a psychologist whose name is Tal Ben-Shahar. And uh, it's a course that he teaches at Harvard called Positive Psychology. And it's the most well-attended course, apparently, at Harvard. And the book is called The Pursuit of Perfect. And it talks about, you know, this exact idea of, it's not saying accept mediocrity. It's It's actually enabling you and it's empowering you to think you can do things, but don't forget the other things. Because going to the gym seven days a week is not the goal. It's going to the gym, you know, four days a week and being okay with that. Consistently. So you're, you're still achieving your goals, right. but you're not going overboard. You're not seeking perfection. You're seeking an optimal sort of environment. Does it, I, I never, it's rare that somebody says a book that I haven't <laughs> read. So I love, I love that you gave me one. Does it also talk about ba- balance? Is that kind of part of the, the nature of it? Yeah, I would say that uh, <laughs> there's another book I read on balance, which is there's no such thing as balance, and um, you know you're you're living a life of unbalance because you're two people. Yeah. And so I firmly believe in this idea of you know if you're if you're disconnected and you can focus where your energies where you want to focus and spend and commit to that time mentally, and it speaks to that. You probably read this book by Cal Newport called Deep Work. It's a good book. And uh, yeah, I, I really admire that book a lot, actually, because I think it's helped me think more clearly where I can have focused, undistracted attention to a particular task, whether it be with my kids, with my wife, or at work. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, that's the concept that I live by. All right, last one for you here. Uh, when, when all is said and done and you look back on everything you've been able to achieve, everything your team's been able to achieve, what's going to be the title of your autobiography? <laughs> uh my kids still want to hang out with me when i when they're <laughs> teenagers <laughs> oh i love that i love that speaking yeah. as someone who uh who recently married uh working on the family part uh that is uh i will remember that one for a while yeah <laughs> <laughs> awesome well danny you've given so much to our to our listeners today i'm sure everyone appreciates it appreciates it and um, I always allow for a little bit of self-promotion at the end here. So how can those listening help you out? You know, if people want to learn about what we're doing in more detail, please feel free to connect with us through our website, uh, precisionostech.com. Uh, we're happy to answer any questions. Uh, if you're interested in, you know, listening to this podcast and providing feedback or have additional questions for me, I'm happy to answer them. I think that uh, this idea of knowledge sharing isn't just part of what we do as a company and a product. It's part of what we do in general. So I, I really like sharing my sort of early journey and I'm still learning. And I think that should be uh, part of that messaging. So happy to learn from other people and certainly happy to share my experience so far in this space. Thanks for sharing. This has been fun. And uh, 
we'll have to do a part two sometime soon. Thank you, Jim. Really All fantastic right. time with you. Thanks, Danny. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.